Welcome to the Space Store podcast. You're listening to season one of the Space Talk. Every week on the Space Talk, we are joined by space experts and enthusiasts from across the globe to have fascinating conversations about all things space. This is a recording of our live show of season one, episode four. We're not going to Mars this year with space experts and astronomers Nick Howes and Terry Mosley. We discuss the past, present and future of Mars exploration and the trials and tribulations of getting to the Red Planet. This space talk is also available to watch in wonderful Technicolor, along with all of seasons 1, 2 and 3 on the Space Store YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Space Store Live. The last time Terry and I were together, um, we were in the front of a telescope. <laughs> That's right, a big one. A very big, so the Leviathan um, telescope, um, which has been kind of rebuilt, restored, um, up at the Burr Castle, is it? in County Offaly. In yeah, yeah. Absolutely fantastic. Um, yeah. Terry, bless him, just uh, put out an invite and let me kind of climb inside this telescope. So there's a great picture of us kind of stood in the front of it. It's just amazing. So. Yeah. It was the biggest telescope in the world for 70 years, and yep. it was in the middle of a bog in Ireland. <laughs> First one to allow uh, people to see the structure of galaxies with M51. Yeah, yep. yeah. So we're going to kind of, it's a bit of a lighthearted, um, not too serious, but we're going to dip in and out of the science uh, kind of history of the exploration of Mars and what's gone on in the past, what's gone on in the recent future, and hopefully kind of end up with what's been planned for the future. Uh, with the likes of SpaceX, NASA, and various other organizations that are looking forward to uh, uh, sharing us the red planet over the coming decade or so. So, welcome to Mars. Um, yeah, you thought lockdown was bad. Um, Mars is, and always has been, a really, really tricky place to get to. Uh, we'll talk a lot more about that during during the course of the next 45 minutes or so. Um, if you think it's a wonderful sunny holiday place and Wadi Rum is where uh, a lot of the Martian, which you can see in this uh, in this image, was filmed uh, by Ridley Scott. Um, it's not. It's typically anywhere between minus 80 to minus 100 degrees. Sometimes gets up to near zero if you're lucky in the summer. Um, atmosphere uh, almost non-existent, but enough to cause havoc to spacecraft as they're coming in. Uh, and a really inhospitable place, and uh, not somewhere you really want to be. So the thought of travelling to Mars in potentially a nine-month to one-year mission, then spending another year on the surface, and then a year, if you were coming back, um, in a spacecraft that may be no larger than you know a living room and, and and a dining room in an average house, is probably it's an interesting challenge based on I don't know what you think, Terry, about what we're going through at the moment in the world. Yeah, uh, I'm not too bad, I have to say, personally, I have a garden to go to. I would hate to be cooped up in a spacecraft, even for the length of time that this lockdown has gone, never mind the time it takes to get to Mars or back again. Uh, so, yeah, I, uh, I would love to go to Mars, but I'd love it to be an awful lot easier than it actually is at the moment. Yeah, that's the thing. You only have to go back 50 years to the Apollo era and the Apollo command modules, if people in the uh, in the listening audience have seen them, um, they are relatively small and they were housing um, three astronauts, obviously on the on the lunar and the Apollo missions between that, the command module and obviously the, the lander itself. Uh, not a lot of space in those, uh, and, but that was only for, you know, potentially a week to 10 days worth of mission, whereas this would be three years. So it's gonna be uh, a real challenge to get there. So, but on yeah, that yeah. note, 
why do we want to go there? I mean, this is an image um, of some of the uh, earliest mapping that was done of Mars uh, by the likes of Schiaparelli and Percival Lowell uh, from the Lowell Observatory. So in the late 1800, Schiaparelli um, had done some observations where he detected what he called canali, which were channels, really. Um, but it kind of erroneously got translated into canals. And then Percival Lowell, as Terry will probably uh, be able to tell us more about, um, then took up the story, uh, built an observatory really designed to, to observe Mars, sat in this huge Great Blue Telescope, this big refracting telescope, which is still there. Absolutely wonderful observatory uh, in uh, Flagstaff in Arizona, not too far from uh, Barringer Crater, also known as Meteor Crater. Um, and these, this kind of whole idea of canals and life on Mars with the whole what was happening with HG Wells as well, really took hold. Yeah, the, the thing about Mars is it's the only planet in the solar system that we can see actual surface detail on. We can see surface detail on Jupiter and Saturn, but it's only the, the top of the clouds. Uh, Mercury, certainly back in those days, you could not really make out any detail on the surface at all. Venus is totally covered in clouds. And people always believed from way, way back that there was likely to be uh, life on other planets. And even Sir, great Sir William Herschel thought there could be life on the sun, which now seems absolutely, totally mind-blowingly incredible. But certainly Mars showed not only surface features, but it showed that it had polar caps, which were thought to be at least partly of uh, water ice, and they are. And it also showed changes on the surface and it was very, very tempting to believe that that was due to life. Well, it was simply um, simple vegeta vegetable life that was changing with the seasons, the Mar Mars's seasons, just like the Earth, or whether, as Lewald believed, that there was evidence of an advanced civilization. But the focus was always on Mars because you could see that detail. And of course, that was the planet was loved, beloved of science fiction writers like H.G. Wells and so on. And the famous broadcast uh, of the invasion of the Martians really sort of uh, emphasized just how, how seriously people took that idea. It was terrifying. If, if people haven't heard that, Orson Welles, yeah. uh, this is going back about 70, 80 years now, did a radio broadcast that it started out quite well. And it was a radio play about basically the invasion of Earth from, from Martians. But it was done in such a way that it sounded like a news broadcast. And yeah. it had so many people in the United States panicking and running out in the streets and genuinely believing that we're being invaded by Martians, which is, it, it seems quite strange and, and silly now, but again, looking at what the what our planet is going through in terms of the microbial invasion, as it were, from uh, you know something so small that's wreaked so much havoc, um, you can imagine how terrified people would have been 70, 80 years ago. Yeah. First example of fake news. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so what you can see on the screen now is, um, as Terry was saying, it's one of the great things about amateur astronomy. This is The, the images you can see on the right-hand side of the screen uh, taken from the Philippines by a really, really great uh, amateur astronomer by the name of Christopher Goh. There's obviously people like Damien Peach and all of the, you know, some really, really great planetary images around the world. They've been taking fantastic images of Mars. And the nice thing is you can see it rotating. So if you're up all night during the winter and Mars is in a good position relative to where you're on the Earth, uh, you can see these features kind of rotating around and some people have created animations quite simply. Um, with a half decent sized telescope, you can even see some of the volcanoes on Mars because obviously Mars has got some of the largest volcanoes, indeed the largest volcano in the solar system in Olympus Mons, uh, which is 
area-wise, about the size of Texas. It's absolutely enormous. But uh, it's one of those things that you look at the kind of Mercator projection map in the bottom left, and you look at the some of the images and drawings done by the likes of Lowell and Chaparelli, and you can see how they thought that these channels did exist. Because as Terry was saying, you've got these seasonal variations, typically caused by changes in dust, um, dust storms, etc., which are prevalent on Mars. They can cover the entire planet for weeks at a time, months at a time even. Um, and it's one of those things that it is, it's a rarely beautiful thing to, to be able to see uh, the surface of another world. Apart from the moon, obviously, you can see a lot of surface detail on the moon, but it's so close. Um, the other thing that probably got people thinking about Mars as, as a potential for life is the polar caps. You, you look at our own Earth and, you know, we've got two very prominent polar uh, regions in the Antarctic and the Arctic. They were looking at Mars and thinking, well, there's ice poles there. That means there must be water, or so it was believed, obviously, in the days before, you know, more advanced observations and spectroscopy um, and that could have led obviously to people thinking that there was uh, prevalence of life on the surface yeah they didn't know then that, Mar that mars had such a thin atmosphere they knew it had some because of the dust storms that you could see it takes some sort of an atmosphere to be able to whip up dust which uh, would temporarily obscure parts of the the disk and then that would disappear again so there was definitely some sort of an atmosphere there they didn't know then just how rarefied it was but going back to the polar caps they shrink and uh, expand with the martian seasons so uh, there really was a lot of evidence that there could be water in some sort of liquid form on the surface now we know it's not as simple as that because the the ice is sublimating when it disappears it goes directly into vapor it doesn't become liquid water at least not on the surface but the other thing is looking for the canals and so on the human brain has a great tendency to join up very faint indistinct features and make them into something that uh, actually isn't there and the so-called canals were very largely a product of human imagination. And probably you have to say, even though they were respected astronomers, there was a lot of wishful thinking involved. They wanted to see canals and it's very, very easy uh, to join up very faint, distinct features and make them into a, a, a line joining two points, which is what they were doing. Uh, but modern imaging obviously has shown that that simply is not the case. That's true. And that kind of neatly leads on to the, the advent of the space age. So obviously from 1957, humankind has been able to launch satellites into low Earth orbit. And it didn't take long from the launch of Sputnik and obviously the time of Gagarin for both the Russians, the Soviet Union, as it was in those days, and the earliest kind of NASA um, coming from the NACA uh, to start launch, launching and thinking about interplanetary probes. Um, the Russians have had a really interesting track record in terms of success rate, and we'll talk a lot uh, more about that in a bit. But one of the first really successful missions uh, out to Mars, or the first really successful mission out to Mars, was Mariner 4. Um, this was around about well, it was the early part of the 1960s, um, designed as a flyby, because orbital insertion, as we'll, we'll go into a bit later, is vastly more complex so just in a simple flyby of the of the planetary surface uh, really hit home just what kind of a world it was or at the time so it was believed it, it hit home what what kind of a world it was because from the first images we got back and you can look at how poor these were even compared to amateur images now we've just seen in the previous slide um, but it gave us more of a detailed view of what the planet was in terms of craters all the things that we didn't expect to find there were then kind of brought into view 
and people thought well hold on this is a barren world this is exactly like the moon or like you know any of the other uh, you know potential worlds like mercury this is this is not going to support life it's it's dead it's a feature you know it's a crater popped featureless as it were uh, planet unfortunately uh, later exploration kind of put pay to that but terry i mean you were you were saying at the outset that you remember mariner 4 have you got any recollection of this I do. I have to say I was a bit disappointed uh, because those images are, you know, they're not good. But when you think that they had to be sent back over that incredible distance, they were recorded on a tape recorder, basically, yeah. and then transmitted back at, I don't know what the rate was, but about five bits per second or something. You know, don't quote me on that, but it was incredibly slow. And uh, the trans transmitter that they had wasn't really very powerful. So that they got anything at all back was brilliant. And it, it showed that it was possible. And then improvements in technology gave much better pictures with Mariner 6 and 7 and then 9 as well. It's, yeah, it's true, because you, you think about now, we've got CCD cameras, we've got vast amounts of computing power, even on spacecraft these days. And that's exponentially increasing like almost year by year. As Terry was saying, they, they barely had computing power at all, very low power transmitters. Um, there's great stories about some of the early Mariner images being hand colored in. So the data would come in in this raw binary form and you'd have engineers with large posters literally hand coloring and hand shading in the images to try and get you know as quick as possible a, a, an image back from, from their spacecraft. And it's, it's just amazing. The interesting one that I found uh, in the last few days going through some of the... Uh, history of Mariner 4 was this though with Clyde Tombaugh. So Clyde Tombaugh is obviously very famous for being the discoverer of Pluto and even in the mid-1960s and there's episodes as well of things like Sky at Night with Patrick Moore and some of the conversations with Carl Sagan where they still thought that there was a potential for life and, and vegetation and, and something happening on the surface of Mars even up until the mid-60s. This is at the time of Mariner 4. Um, I just... Again, going back to what you're saying about Herschel, Terry, it's, it's, I find this amazing. Sorry, say again? I was saying I find this amazing that, you know, you're going back to what you're saying about uh, the Herschels and their belief yeah. that, you know, there was life on the surface of the sun. But even until like the mid-1960s, this is at the height of, you know, the ramp up of the Apollo program. And you think you yeah. know, technologically we're so advanced. And yet you've got eminent astronomers like Clyde Tombaugh there saying that he genuinely believed that there was still vegetation on the surface of Mars. Yeah, I know. And of course, you couldn't see the surface of Venus. And we didn't know back then, uh, before the, the first spacecraft there, that the temperature was so incredibly hot, the atmosphere was poisonous, and the pressure was enough to crush you. But there was even speculation that there was life on Venus. And it's easy to speculate whenever everything is hidden by clouds and you can't see underneath. But yes, it was, it was widely thought that there would be life uh, on anywhere else in the solar system that it was physically possible for life to exist. I mean, I know that it's almost impossible on the surface of Venus. Some speculation that there could be bacteria high up in the clouds where it's a bit cooler. But basically, getting back to tonight's topic, Mars was the number one priority for looking for possible life. Well, it's this idea of the Goldilocks zone. There was a really great talk I attended um, earlier this week with Martin Griffiths, um, who's an astronomer based in South Wales. And he was talking about the whole concept of the habitable zone and how now with exoplanets, we're trying to determine whether or not there's potential for life on, on worlds orbiting other star systems. And the thing with Mars is it kind of does just border on the habitable zone around you know, our own sun. Venus is, is probably too 
you know, is too extreme and always has been. But Mars does dip in and out. And this whole thing with what's happening now with the exploration of Mars and that's still the search for life because there's still no accurate kind of determination as to whether or not there has been life on Mars in the past or that there potentially could still be life there. Anyway, so going back to Mariner 4, this was the engineers building the spacecraft. Um, spacecraft design has really hasn't changed that much in the last like 40, 50 years. You've still got solar arrays for anything pretty much going out towards Mars. A bit further out, you rely more on uh, radio thermo uh, nuclear generators. Um, but the spacecraft concept and design, the, the electronics on board are far more sophisticated. The solar panels are far more efficient. The transmitters are better. We've got much better computing power. Um, but that's essentially what they had in the mid-1960s. And then moving on from that, as Terry said, we had Mariner 4, then you know, 6 and 7. Again, flyby missions giving us better and better images. But the kicker came, I'd say, late 1960s, early 1970s, with the development and then launch and, and orbital insertion of Mariner 9, where we really started to get very detailed images from the Martian surface. And even when it got there, we didn't, because the whole planet was shrouded in a dust storm. So they had to wait in orbit and just until the dust storm had cleared but once it had the images that were coming back were absolutely spectacular and we've still got features now like the mariner valley which is pretty much the size of the continental united states um, makes the grand canyon look like a, a small brook in comparison uh, named after this remarkable spacecraft so terry thoughts on mariner 9 yeah that was the first uh a uh, mission that really showed a lot of detail. And uh, one of the amazing things was uh, at the time, although it's not amazing in retrospect, that there were so many craters uh, because you couldn't really see them from Earth. But um, when you think about it, Mars is such a thin atmosphere that an awful lot of um, impacting bodies will simply get through and hit the surface. You only have to look at the moon and see what has happened to it. And the other thing was that it indicated that there hadn't been anything like plate tectonics or atmospheric erosion, for, uh, not to any significant extent, and that a lot of the craters were still relatively sharp edged, like the ones on the moon, whereas any craters on the Earth have been almost totally obliterated, except for ones that are very recent, like the Barringer Crater in Arizona. Uh, but that was the revelation. Also, uh, some uh, images of what looked very, very like river uh, valleys or the, the beds of rivers or the tracks of rivers and uh, also a bit more detail on the edges of the polar caps. So that was a quantum leap forward compared with Mariner 4 and uh, it, it sort of really sparked the interest to say uh, for further exploration saying this is a fascinating planet. Uh, particularly the, the Valles Marineris, the huge valley, and the, um, the major mountains like um, Olympus Mons, it definitely sparked interest for justifying uh, expenditure for more advanced missions, which, which did follow. Yeah, I mean, as you were saying, it was the first detection, really, that there was potential for things like river deltas, river erosion yeah. coming back from these still primitive images, don't forget. I mean, we're, yeah. we're still way before the era of CCD cameras. We're only just at the kind of tip end of the Apollo program, where obviously technology was advancing again at a, a spectacular rate. But it's still difficult to get there. Mariner 9 was a huge success, but kind of briefly flicked into this slide earlier. Um, the Great Galactic Ghoul, as it's known, um, coined, I believe, by Time magazine. So 
I find it really fascinating that in terms of the success rate out to the outer planets like Saturn, Jupiter, we've had obviously Galileo, Juno, the pioneers, we've had the voyagers, all incredibly successful missions, Juno going into orbit as well, some of the most complex orbital dynamics ever achieved, um, obviously Cassini at Saturn and Huygens going into Titan. There's been some remarkable successes in the outer planets, which are obviously significantly further out than Mars. But Mars itself still holds this kind of terror for most um, systems engineers, um, rocket scientists, for want of a better term, uh, in terms of getting there, because it's incredibly hard. And I think of all, you know, 28 missions have failed to even get to Mars or, or, or be fully successful. And I think only about 18 have actually gone into orbit and, and or landed on the surface. So the same with the Russians. They've been trying since 1960 to get anything onto the surface of Mars. And they've had barely any success at all. Um, and we'll kind of go into that now with uh, the first thing. It's a great pub quiz question when people say, what was the first thing to land on Mars? And people say, oh, Viking. Well, it wasn't. It was the Russian Mars landers, Mars 3 in particular, which managed to hit the surface and transmit for about 15 seconds. And what you can see, that kind of TV scan line pixelated mess in the bottom left is the first image, technically, from the surface of Mars. Um, and it's beautiful to find now with the high-rise camera on one of the orbiters, um, some of the detailed images that have been able to show the, these crash sites. But it's hard, isn't it, Terry, to get there? Yeah. The thing about Mars is it does have some atmosphere, and you have to allow for that. If you don't allow for it, your spacecraft is going to burn up on the way down. So it's not like landing something on the moon where you simply use retro rockets, if nothing else. On the other hand, the atmosphere is so thin that it barely, it's barely dense enough to slow down a spacecraft coming in from uh, the, the velocity that it has being sent from Earth. So you're in a sort of a quandary. How much do you rely on parachutes? How much do you rely on retro rockets? When does one take over from the other? Um, for us, the flyby missions were relatively simple. The orbital desertion missions were relatively simple. But there have been so many different techniques tried to get soft landings on Mars. Uh, a combination of retro rockets and parachutes and the big bouncing balloons and so on, and the sky crane and so on, which we'll probably talk about later. So that made the uh, attempts to soft land on Mars more complicated because you were allowing for several different factors. The breaking effect of the atmosphere, you also had to allow for the, the ablation, the heating effect of the atmosphere when you're coming in, and then you wanted a soft landing at the end of it. So it was a, a couple of extra layers of complexity, and I think that is responsible for uh, quite a few of the failures. Well, that's the thing. You're typically arriving at the planet at anywhere, you know, 20, 30,000 miles an hour. And then typically what they'll do is they'll dip in and out of the atmosphere to, to slow and to kind of break the spacecraft to a limited extent. But you're still then hitting the atmosphere at hypersonic velocities. And then you've got to deploy a parachute. And some of the parachutes, you know, they've been tested for the recent landers. They're absolutely enormous. And they've got to take hypersonic, almost like hypersonic velocity shocks um, on deployment. Some of them, I mean, it depends on the parachute, but some of them tested seven, eight hundred miles an hour uh, coming out the back of a spacecraft and higher velocities. Um, and as you said, then you've got to have the combination of the parachute deploying at the right time. You've got to jettison weights. So you'd have balanced mass weights, which would, you know, kind of... Uh, change the orientation of the spacecraft. Then you've got to deploy the heat shield. Then you've got to take out the back shell. Then you've got to land the spacecraft on the surface, either with balloons or retros or whatever. And then the whole thing with retros is obviously more complex because you've got an inordinate amount of dust on the surface, yeah. which you don't want to be clogging up the instruments. 
So kind of brings on nicely there to, to the first true success uh, in terms of landing on the surface. And this is kind of where I got into, into astronomy and space at the tender age of about seven. Uh, watching the Viking landers. And I thought this was absolutely remarkable. And, you know, Carl Sagan there, quite instrumental in, in a lot of the uh, kind of popularization of space science over the years with his Cosmos series, um, standing next to Viking to give you an idea of just how big it is. The image in the top right is the first ever image taken from the surface of Mars. And that's what I love about NASA as well. They don't delay with images. They, they kind of get them out really, really quickly. Um, the image in the bottom left is the really much more detailed images that we were getting from the Viking orbiters, because don't forget, Viking wasn't just landers. There were orbiters who were successful, and in some cases, are still there. They're still orbiting. They're defunct, but they're still in orbit around Mars. And then uh, some of the scientific instrumentation in the bottom right, you know, the ability to dig and, and deposit samples into a, this incredible science laboratory, which included biological experiments for labeled release and looking at the potential for life on the surface of Mars back in the 1970s. And we still don't know what the results are from that accurately, do we, Terry? Yeah, sorry, you're dropping off a wave there, Finn. Just uh, repeat the question. I was saying we, we still don't know um, what the real results from the you know the label release experiment and the biological experiments are on yeah. Viking. They're, they're still in debate to this day. And yeah, that's like 40 years so. later. Yeah, uh, nothing is clear cut, particularly when you're doing everything remotely. Uh, if you have got the samples in a lab on Earth, you can do repeat experiments, you can try different techniques and so on. Uh, but a lot of the stuff is on the edge of detectability and also there are possible uh, multiple explanations for example methane. It can be created biologically but it can also be created uh, basically chemically. So interpretation is, is very much a matter of uh, debate between different scientists. Even the famous Martian meteorite which had the, um, the Alnihil's 84001, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, which possibly showed evidence of, of tiny little uh, microbes and it, you know there was a huge debate about that at the time but the consensus now even from uh, scientists back on earth is that probably they're, they're not evidence of life but uh, nothing on, on Mars is absolutely clear-cut we still don't even know what caused uh, the Vallis Marineris for example. Absolutely yeah and you only have to look at the, the label release and the whole debate over percolates and you know what was causing it the you know these salts uh you know the percolate uh, materials that were kind of almost fudging the results as it were and it's as i said to this day we still don't know and that's probably what caused then what i would call this huge hiatus for, so from 1976 with the landing of the vikings and they were operational for a few years afterwards up until 1997 there really wasn't any kind of desire to go back because people had said well there isn't any life there. But then yeah. the interest kind of got sparked again. And NASA took a really brave step, as you were kind of alluding to before. Uh, first of all, in putting a rover on the surface. And this is the thing that almost broke the internet in its early days in 1997, when uh, Sojourner and Pathfinder landed on the surface of Mars and people could view this on NASA's website. And they had, I think, at one point over a million people trying to view these cameras. And these images coming back from Sojourner. I mean, this thing's tiny. This is like the size of a, uh, a slightly large radio controlled car that you'd have, you know, give your kids for Christmas. But the first steps that it was taking were, were quite significant. And it was the first way, first test really of this balloon based landing system where you've effectively, you've slowed down the spacecraft enough um, that you can bounce it off the surface by essentially 
firing up airbags around it, and it worked. Yeah, that, that's what I was referring to earlier. It, it really is a very simple system, but you have to get the velocity reduced down to something reasonable before uh, that would work. But you couldn't use that for a big, uh, heavy, uh, multifunctional spacecraft that they're, you're using now. Uh, you couldn't put something the size of a car inside those balloon things and, and expect it to survive uh, an impact like that. But it worked for that one. No, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic thing. And, you, you know, you can imagine, you look at the image on the left and all the number of sharp rocks, etc. The, the potential for disaster with this was quite high. But yeah. still, and Sojourner was you know, roving around for quite some time on the surface, uh, delivering fantastic science and proving that you could put a rover on the surface of a distant planet. Don't forget, the only time this had ever been done before was the rovers on the Apollo program from Apollo 15, 16 and 17. And they had human drivers. And then you've got the light round trip time of you know 20 plus minutes where the level of autonomy that now has to be developed in some of these rovers and we'll touch upon that in a, in a little while um, has got to be so precise so that they can almost take control themselves and decide where they're going to go and what they're going to observe and how they're going to move and if they're going to be able to move safely um yeah. and going sorry terry go on yeah, I was just going to say, just looking at that photograph, uh, it draws up uh, another point, and that is powering uh, a um, rover on Mars. Solar panels uh, are obviously the main source of electricity and so on, but they are subject to two main factors. First of all, Mars is on average a lot further away from um, the sun than the Earth is, so the amount of sunlight is greatly reduced. It obviously has its day, which is only about 40 minutes longer than the Earth, so uh, it spends half of the 24 hours, 37 minutes in darkness. And also there's the problem of dust storms, and we saw that then with later spacecraft where they, they, the dust storm uh, obscured the amount of sunlight so much that they, the power failed. So you have the choice of using uh, solar panels and um, a nuclear generator, and that has its own problems, but it's just one of the many issues that you have to address if you're putting uh, something on Mars that's expected to last for a long time. And some of them have, as we'd say later, exceeded their, their mission lifetime by a factor of, what, 20? I'll, I'll keep going. It yeah. is incredible. And you say about the dust, it's, it's not only the fact that you've got dust, it's highly corrosive. You only have to look at the wheels on some of the rovers, yeah. how they've been literally torn apart uh, by a combination of rocks and the, this really corrosive material, because Mars gets its colour from this kind of rusting that's happening on the surface. Um, but also, you've got the temperature variations. So if you've got sensitive electronics and you're going into a Martian night, as Terry was saying, you know, it's vastly further away depending on its position in orbit from the earth and the temperatures can drop quite significantly between daytime and nighttime even but obviously on a seasonal basis you're looking at massive temperature fluctuations the likes of which i mean obviously on the lunar surface they've had but these the rovers on the lunar surface are only designed for maybe a couple of days with humans being there as well and these things have got to operate autonomously or semi-autonomously for you know potentially in the case of um the MER rovers for years at a time. Um, I just want to touch on this uh, graceful, wonderful failure, uh, the British. I'd say a failure. This is the only thing that the Russian, a Russian launcher has ever got onto the surface of Mars um, successfully. So Beagle 2 was uh, a wonderful uh, little spacecraft 
around about the cost of a premiership football player in terms of its total budget. So very, very low cost. Um, pioneered by the guy in the bottom left, who's sadly no longer with us, Colin Pillinger, and his team based at the Open University and the University of Leicester, people like Mark Sims and Ralph Lorenz, some great people who went on to work on spectacular missions, um, including Huygens, for example. But this, the thing about Beagle that people don't recognise this out is that it was a failure. Well, it wasn't. It made it to the surface. Um, and some of the images from the high-rise camera show that. It made it successfully to the surface. So... Um, entry, descent and landing, EDL phase, it managed, it deployed its parachutes, it unfurled some of its solar panels. So it got down there and the scientific package on Beagle was spectacular. It, they managed to take equipment which previously had been four or five times the size and put it into something the size not much bigger than a bicycle wheel in terms of the area of the spacecraft. And I just, I, I remember what I was doing watching that on Christmas a few years ago. Uh, kind of praying almost thinking you know please please succeed please succeed because everyone was so skeptical about it skeptical about it and the european space agency you know they were very damning about their level of testing and you know the mistakes but then it was found and found to have worked on the surface i just i think it's one of those wonderful kind of british semi-success stories i don't know what you think terry about beagle but... yeah it was almost a success it only needed sort of the the one other panel to open and it would have been okay. Uh, I don't know the exact details, but you can see from the uh, image there on the right that three of the, the panel things opened, but uh, the other two didn't. Something jammed. If, it, if it, all five had opened, or sorry, four had opened, uh, uh, leaving the, uh, the, the main unit exposed, then it would have been a success. It was pretty close. Yeah, really, really amazing. Back to success stories, though. Um, Steve Squires, um, who's mission PI for the MER rover, Spirit and Opportunity, um, I bet he never thought he was going to have the rip-roaring success that he did. I remember being sat in a bar in um, at Caltech in Pasadena talking to the guy who was driving the rovers just after Spirit had kind of got stuck in its sand trap and they were looking at how they were going to get around it. But you only have to look at the stats in, in the top left image there. And to think that between the two of them, it's 20 plus years of, of exploration time on, on the Martian surface. Um, huge distances traveled and all solar powered and again bounced with balloons onto the surface. And it really gave us a true feeling for what Mars was, was going to, to deliver in terms of future science. And I don't know what you think about uh, Spirit and Opportunity, Terry, but I love these missions. Yeah, yeah, they were absolutely amazing. Uh, they weren't quite autonomous, uh, but they had to sort of operate on their own for quite a while, uh, particularly with the time delay and sending the signals. Uh, but I followed them and uh, the way they would uh, identify a target up ahead and go up to it very, very carefully and look at it. And then they'd look at the images and select another target and move on to it. All very, very slowly and cautiously, but obviously you don't risk your, your hardware whenever you've got it that far. But yeah, the images they, they sent back were absolutely amazing. And this lovely panorama there um, of, of, of the view. And uh, you could look at that on a large screen or a large print and, and go over it with a magnifying glass and spend hours looking at it. 
Yeah, because it was showing depositional layering. It was showing the real, really the first time direct evidence of that there had been water on the yeah. surface of Mars. And, you know, to be going for as long as they were they were going for. And people almost became emotionally attached. You know, they talk about Rosetta and, you know, the whole emotional attachment. With these rovers, they, people genuinely started to get emotionally attached to them. It was that kind of almost humanoid look with the pan cam and the, the, the configuration of the cameras and the little selfies it would take. And it was yeah. just, they were amazing, amazing space cameras. Yeah. Uh, NASA got in on the PR Sorry, NASA got in on the PR aspect very carefully about getting these selfies. Yeah. And it did encourage people to actually identify with them and they had their own little personality almost. So as you say, a lot of people were actually emotionally upset whenever the missions came to an end. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. <coughs> NASA took this great big leap, but then it needed something bigger. It needed something even more spectacular. And this story I absolutely love. So the guy in the middle uh, kind of pointing out was a chap called Adam Steltzner, who is uh, one of the kind of lead scientists on Curiosity or Mars Science Laboratory. And his story is amazing. He, he really is a bit of a rock star. He's kind of a bit of a college dropout. As he said, he was studying the kind of uh, rock and roll, sex and drugs and rock and roll lifestyle. Um, and he was driving home one night and he looked up at Orion and thought, this is really interesting. And he was looking at the different positions of Orion, decided to go back to, to school, as it were, and study astronomy and, and study physics. Uh, and then he came up with this absolutely insane idea of a sky crane, of basically having a spacecraft descend almost to the surface of Mars and then drop on glorified piano wires the main rover, which is the size of a Mini Cooper as Terry was alluding to before, onto the surface. Um, the guy in the top left, Bo Rapfordosi, this is a kind of, again, an homage to, to kind of how NASA have really embraced the whole PR side. You know, in the 60s, you had everyone in white shirts and black ties and their kind of little clip pens. And, and to, to move from that into this era of really embracing, you know, how society and how the public can respond the spacecraft I thought was amazing and I remember watching this and you know within a few minutes of it landing on the surface we were getting images directly back um, but that seven minutes of terror video if people haven't seen it just find it on YouTube it's it's an incredible incredible video that kind of shows just how complex this mission was and how insane everyone thought he was in, in proposing it yeah uh, I mean it was a very ambitious mission uh, as you say so many different uh, aspects to it everything had to happen not only in the right sequence but exactly at the right time uh, because you know you do it a bit late and the sky crane is too high up uh, whenever it it starts to send the thing a bit too late and you hit the ground uh, it worked with sort of almost uh, unbelievable precision um, to, to fractions of a second in some cases um, so it just shows you, you know, if, if you're bold and if you do all your checking and all your testing right, you can do it. Take risks. And again, this kind of leads on a little bit. I'll, I'll go through this quite quickly. Um, to the Indian mission, again, the cost of a premiership football player. And nobody thought this was going to be a success. But the Indian MOM, the Mangalayan, I hope I pronounced that correctly, uh, Mars spacecraft, very small spacecraft, very similar, simple instrumentation, but quite amazing feat for like about $60, $70 million, which obviously is a lot of money. But to get a spacecraft into orbit around Mars that's still working to this day, I think was just astonishing. 
yeah, a year and a half uh, still going. Yeah. And uh, it's not hugely ambitious in terms of the science. It was partly a, a, a demonstrator of the technology and the fact that they can do it. But success on their first attempt, and as you say, for a very, very uh, minor cost compared with any of the NASA or ESA missions. Yeah, I mean, you go back to the next rovers, obviously, we've now got Perseverance, uh, Mars 2020, as was, which is a kind of expanded version of MSL and Curiosity uh, with core drill capability, more options for kind of looking for the precursors of life and the potential evidence for life on the surface. Big nuclear power station on the back of that, as you said, you know, because solar panels, at, you know, when you're talking about instrumentation at this kind of size, really, really complex. But I'm really looking forward to this one because um, I mean, it's due to launch in the not too distant future. Um, nine month to a 10 month round trip there or uh, time to get there. Um, hopefully, again, using the sky crane successfully to get it on the surface. Um, what do you think we can expect to get from this one, Terry? Oh. Um, I'm not familiar with all the details of the, of the missions, but it will uh, obviously hugely extend the, uh, the area of exploration. It's going down in a crater which has already been identified as a very promising candidate for looking for um, sources of, of previous life. Uh, there's been a lot of water activity. There's evidence of uh, chemical activity with possible biological um, aspects to it as well. Um, there's so many, I think it's what, eight or nine different aspects to that mission. Uh, any one of them, if they succeed, will greatly improve our, our knowledge. And if they all succeed, it'll keep scientists busy for the next 15, 20 years. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that whole thing, that debate of methane in particular, because we've had detections from the European Space Agency's Mars Express spacecraft was one of the first to detect this methane hotspot, as it were. And you can see that in the bottom left on the image, these kind of um, seasonal variations in methane. And we're only talking about parts per billion. We're not talking about high concentrations, but methane production. Uh, it needs something to keep it going. And as Terry was alluding to before, we've either got a chemical process involving you know, rocks, olivine, et cetera, that could be producing the methane, or, and this is the big or, uh, we've got subsurface microbial activity. And that would be amazing. It'd be the first evidence, obviously, of, of life on another planet. I've got a bit of a vested interest in this. The, the right-hand side of the image is a little project I've been working on for years called Median, which is a kind of high-velocity impactor designed to sense out methane uh, and tie in with a rover and kind of encourage the rovers to go in certain directions uh, by providing very, very detailed um, kind of accurate uh, levels of methane at specific points within the landing ellipse. But it's going to be a very interesting time, as you were saying, Terry, between what's happening with Mars 2020, um, obviously this search for water and methane, subsurface, potentially subsurface life. And then the European Space Agency aren't too far behind. Now they've had to have a little postponement um, due to some of the parachute tests failing. But the Rosalind Franklin uh, rover, named after the fantastic scientist who helped uh, with the whole discovery of DNA, um, uh, didn't really get sufficient credit for it, but that's a whole other debate uh, waiting to happen. But um, this is a huge um, leap forward for kind of European science, as it were, with this rover. Again, about the size of the NASA rovers, but designed to drill down to really start looking for evidence of life. Um, are you excited about this? Yeah, and it's good to see that Roscosmos, the Russian agency, are involved in this as well. 
Uh, it's not purely an ESA mission. The thing about um, exploring Mars is that while we're looking at it is now there's a huge amount of evidence that Mars had a lot of water in the past, oceans of water. It also had a much thicker atmosphere. And from what we know about the development of life on Earth, once it gets started, although the conditions on Mars now are, are pretty hostile, if life ever started on Mars, it is almost certainly found some sort of niche where it's still surviving below the surface, where it's protected from the excesses of temperature, where it's protected from radiation and so on. So we think that in the past, and we're talking about millions and billions of years ago, Mars was uh, a planet where life was certainly possible in terms of its uh, development evolution. And if it ever did, from what we know on Earth, where bacteria survive in the most hostile, extreme environments, from highly acidic and highly alkali environments, extremely high temperatures, extremely high pressures, if there ever was life on Mars, I would bet that it probably is still surviving somewhere below the surface. And that's really what the whole thrust of these missions is about now. Oh, yeah, you have to look at the extremophiles, you know, like some Bob Ballard, etc., with some of the deep sea, deep sea exploration work that he's pioneered over the years. And, and as you said, extreme pressures, extreme temperatures, extreme levels of acidity, and we're still finding life. So everyone's fingers crossed, uh, I think, for the next 10 years and potentially the discovery of life on another world. Yeah. I'm going to briefly flick through this um <laughs> because there's not a lot that, that needs to be said about this um this whole the human exploration of mars now so we've got these kind of joke missions um i mean mars one was always and every scientist in the world you know i was screaming from the rooftops about this and i know johnny o'callaghan etc and various other people were, were saying the same that it was just a complete scam this whole idea of a game show on mars and it, it was never going to happen but kind of moving on from that, we now move on to uh, Elon Musk. Now, his recent tweets have been a little bit interesting, um, shall we say, in terms of, you know, his, what he's been saying to the world, obviously not only with SpaceX, but with Tesla and threats he's been making and the share price collapsing and all sorts. So maybe lockdowns getting to him a bit, a little bit too much. Um, who knows? But he has got very, very serious ambitions for Mars. And you can't count the guy out. You only have to look at Falcon 9, Falcon Heavy. Falcon Heavy was just amazing. Watching the twin cores landing in parallel. It was like Thunderbirds. It was Jerry Anderson happening in real time. And you only have to think, you know, the the criticism. And, you know, I've sat in meetings where people have said in the past, oh, what's this guy from PayPal? No, well, he clearly knows enough to be able to do successful like vertical takeoff landings he's you know now about to launch uh, the first americans from u.s soil up to the international space station so clearly he is an engineering genius but there are some fundamental flaws i think in in what he's proposing specifically the time scale um obviously with issues of radiation uh with food supplies with bone mass degradation um, there's a whole tranche of medical problems that are the technical problems that have still got to be solved before he gets this, which is his kind of desire um, to put not only uh, these enormous rockets vertically landing on the surface of Mars, but also a base. So your thoughts, Terry, because I know you've, uh, you've yeah. got some interesting thoughts on yeah. Elon as well. For, for a technical problem, there is almost always an engineering solution if you throw enough money and time at it. And uh, the money he's obviously got, the time he can, 
he can't do it, but probably not in the time scale that he's talking about. There's just simply too much to do. But one thing that you can't solve that easily are the human and medical problems. Now, he's talking about a very fast uh, flight time to Mars of uh, normally we allow about 18 months, but he's talking about a, a, a matter of a few months, which does reduce the time that you're exposed to uh, radiation and to weightlessness and so on. But there's still a lot of evidence that um, prolonged exposure in space affects every part of the body, including the brain. Now, to get the uh, human crew to Mars that quickly, you really de need a very, very big, powerful rocket. You also have to have your uh, life support system there on the surface, ready, waiting for you. You can't just walk into your nearest uh, burger bar and, and, and get your, your grub. Everything has to be there waiting for you. And then in terms of the return flight, he's counting on being able to make rocket fuel from the materials on the surface of Mars. As I understand it, while he's going to have very, very powerful Raptor rockets, to uh, Raptor engines to get you there, I don't know whether they're going to work that easily with the sort of fuel that he'd be able to generate on Mars. But uh, if you don't try, you're not going to succeed. Uh, some of the things he's done so far were things that nobody else attempted, not even NASA, although technically they could have. They could have brought rockets back down to Earth and landed them again. You could have done two simultaneously if they'd really wanted to. He was just the first one to try it and did after several attempts succeed. But getting a human crew to Mars, keeping them alive and bringing them back again is many orders of magnitude more difficult than what he's already done. But I wouldn't say that he can't do it. I think it's the timescales that's that's kind of making yeah. everybody think he's a bit, you know, a lot of scientists and, you know, systems engineers and such that I talked to over the years have said, yeah, we, we are going to Mars. There is no doubt in that. It's the next step forward in terms of human exploration. But the back end of the 2030s is where most people think we're going to be by the time we've really solved a lot of the technical issues, you know, put up staging posts, been able to land successfully, the supply systems, you know, it's the Martian. It really is the Martian. They, they got so much of that film right where you've got a yep. large transfer spacecraft in Hermes. I mean, you're not going to be sending anyone to Mars in something the size of the Orion capsule, for example. Um, you're going to need a larger, and obviously Lockheed Martin and various other companies are working on a much larger um, staging posts and orbiters etc for that very purpose but this kind of kind of staged approach we've not been to the moon in 50 years practically so we've we've lost all of that inherent knowledge that we had just from a few days of lunar exploration and that's only 140 150,000 uh, miles away whereas mars you're looking at you know hundreds of millions of miles it tends to hundreds of millions of miles away, depending on where you are in your orbit. You've got very limited orbital transfer type, you know, transfer capabilities. You've got to wait for, you know, the planets to be suitably aligned, as it were, before you can attempt uh, even to get there at these breakneck speeds that, that Musk is talking about. It's a whole, as you said, a whole order of magnitude more complex than yeah. even just going back to the moon. And we've not been back to the moon yet. Yeah. The other thing is that uh, astronauts, even on the International Space Station for six months, where they can exercise and where they can move around and so on. When they land back down on Earth, they're almost crippled. You know, they, they cannot get out of the spacecraft themselves. Now, admittedly, the gravity on Mars isn't uh, it's about 40% what, of what you have on Earth, but they will be in a spacecraft where, as far as I can tell, they won't have room to exercise properly, so they'll be suffering all the problems of uh, muscle wastage, of uh, decalcification of the bones, 
there's no plan for uh, an artificial gravity, so we're going to have uh, effects on their balance, their vestibular system, and yet they're going to have to walk out of that spacecraft when they land on Mars themselves and make their way over to whatever habitation module is there. Uh, and not fracture anything. That yeah. easy. <laughs> no, it's it's really not going to. I mean, Hermes, obviously, in, in the movie The Martian, they had an artificial gravity um, system on board, but as you said, yeah. this is not going to be happening. With yeah. the, and you only have to look at some of the larger, you know, the ISS is the largest thing we've ever put into orbit. Uh, but you look at Skylab and the room that they had on that, you are looking at something really a minimum of that size yeah. to be able to do this effectively. And you only have to look at the scale of the rockets that you know, I've got on screen now. Um, SLS is not even the size of the Saturn V, the initial SLS, the Block 2 one going to be larger. Um, Starship. If it happens, and it really still looks like, you know, it potentially could, the pressure tests, you know, he's blown a few up. He's now got pressure tests working. As I said, don't count him out, but it's still a, a massive leap in terms yeah. of, of what yeah. we've got so far and what we've done so far. But if anybody can do it, I think he can do it. He, he really does have uh, a, a genius idea for what is possible. And he's he succeeded in everything he's tried so far. Maybe not at yeah. the first attempt. But he has succeeded. Well, that's it. He doesn't give up. Um, kind of yeah. leads almost to the end with as uh, kind of alluding to NASA's kind of more detailed plans, as it were, and their more long-term plans to return to the moon and then go on to Mars. And you've got, like I said, the likes of Lockheed and you know the consortia that are now looking at lunar exploration with Draper Labs, um, backed by Jeff Bezos, etc. Uh, Northrop Grumman, various other companies all kind of joining together, which is probably, I think, the right way to do it. It's how it worked in Apollo, where you had lots and lots of big companies all kind of vying, working on, on different elements and components. Um, the kind of deep space uh, habitat, as it were, that uh, you can see on the left there is probably what you're going to need. But as, as Terry was just saying, you're not going to have enough room. You're not going to have much room. They're saying about 70 meters squared or 70, yeah, about 70 meters squared of, uh, per astronaut, depending on how many people they send there. Um, which for a period of two to three years is going to be really, really tough. And then the radiation issues, you say about the radiation, even if they do it in two or three months, you only have to look at what happened in Apollo 17. And they, you know, they narrowly escaped being kind of fried by radiation. Yep. Sun, the sun can go from quiescent, which it really is now, and is, there's nothing much happening on the surface of the sun at the moment, to extremely active. And you only need one big coronal mass ejection yep. um, in the right direction. And the level of radiation people are going to be exposed to, unless they've got proper adequate shielding, is going to be extreme. So it's going to be a tough one. Of course, one. you have cosmic radiation all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And then kind of last but not least, um, before we kind of go into the Q&A, and I know we've overrun a little bit, is the European Space Agency and NASA kind of been toying for years. This is going back to... 2006 and this isn't going to be returning samples till about 2031 2032 but the whole idea of sample return missions this is interesting because if musk has his way he'll have landed people on the surface before this even gets there mm. and brought people back but the idea of being able to bring back pristine samples you only have to look at hayabusa and you know some of the comet interceptor missions of the past few years being able to bring back pristine scientific payloads from orbit or from the surface of another world and you know we're still looking at the apollo moon rocks now 50 years almost later uh, and they're still opening up new canisters that we brought back from apollo 50 years later because we've got much better instrumentation much better scientific understanding and i think this is going to be a really interesting test to see 
you know, just what's going to be viable, hopefully later in the 2030s when human beings possibly do get there, um, unless Musk, you know, does break every record. Um, I love this, the whole, you know, with Perseverance going to be going there and collecting these samples, putting them in canisters, and then potentially, you know, future missions going, landing on the surface, collecting the samples, and then launching them back into orbit, then bringing them back to, to low Earth orbit, and then descending them back to the Earth. Um, it could be an amazing time. I'm a big fan of meteorites, as Terry knows, and yeah. other people here know. Big fan of meteorite collecting. I've got some Mars rocks that have been blasted off from those craters that we saw earlier um, and intercepted the Earth. And I've got you know lots and lots of uh, different Mars rocks. But this to have really pristine scientific samples, I think, is going to be fascinating. Yeah, I have a Martian meteorite myself, but the th thing about the meteorites is you don't have their provenance. You don't know exactly where they came from. No, no. There's nothing to beat actually getting a sample that you want. You identify the sample, you bring it back and you study it then in the laboratory. Hopefully in the future, whether Musk gets humans on Mars or not, we'll be able to develop artificial intelligence, which will be able to make much more intelligent uh, decisions on what samples to, um, to actually collect and bring back so that's another possibility for the future it's interesting though you, you'd look at apollo 17 and the reason they put harrison schmidt on that mission yeah. was he was a geologist yeah. and again robots can only do so much we've really got to get and i know this whole discussion's been about we're not going to get there this year and the premise behind this is we're not going to get there in the next year or so um, we do need to get boots on the ground and i i for one really hope uh within the next 10 to 15 years that we do yeah very much so should we go for a QA? Have we time? Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. That has been absolutely amazing. Um, yeah, we've had so many questions pouring in throughout. Um, and yeah, as we said, um, we'll be extending by 15 minutes. So we'll be here until quarter to seven answering your questions. Um, the first one is quite an interesting one from Artash Nath. And he says, um, will the rise in the number of mission to Mars because of new players so private sectors and um, space agencies, would their different objectives like mining and dominance um, lower the biological planetary protection? <laughs> this, this was my big problem with Musk's original plan, this whole putting you know several hundred people in Starship and dumping them on the surface. And again, what I, the major problem I had with Mars One, even before you know any detailed analysis proved that it was just a ridiculous scam mission anyway. Um, the issue is that you've got very, very tight regulation on planetary protection as it stands. You know, NASA have got class, whatever, 10,000 plus clean rooms at NASA Goddard um, and various other sites like JPL. And they're designed to keep these things incredibly clean. They're designed that, you know, no kind of foreign body arrives on the surface of another world. Um, the Chaparelli disaster, um, in, you know, in recent times has proved that you really don't want to be dumping organics all over the surface of a planet. You really want, don't want to be putting, as the Andromeda strain movie said, the dirtiest thing in the solar system um, onto the surface of another world being the human body. So um, I'd personally like to see proper scientific exploration with, re you know, astronauts, geologists, you know, the whole Martian thing was was right. You, you do it properly first. You send a small group of scientists who really know what they're doing, who are going to adhere to these policies, um, really make a, a, a 
concerted effort to keep the planet as pristine as possible so that we're not contaminating it and we're not fudging you know potentially the discovery of life it's one of the biggest questions in the universe is are we going to find life elsewhere so i for one hope that the commercialization of space doesn't go too far too quickly i don't know what you think terry but yeah absolutely i don't think musk has any particular concern for anything other than his own uh, ambitions if you look at the the sterling satellites it's a completely different issue but it just shows that <laughs> what what he wants to do he does the thing about sending a, a spacecraft to mars you can sterilize the spacecraft you can't very well sterilize the humans on board but there are ways and means of uh, making sure that whatever you're studying on Mars has not been contaminated. And what else fails, you can look at the, the DNA and the chemistry, and if it's from Earth, you'd probably be able to identify it. If it's from Mars, again, you can probably identify it, but uh, you certainly don't want to contaminate your samples. But I agree with you, the only way to really do it properly is to get scientists there, geologists, exobiologists, chemists, and so on. They have to be able to study search for what they, they're interested in, look for it and study it, uh, rather than just take samples at random. Yeah, either that or we're drinking bleach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I hope um, Ronan Newman, who had a similar question about um, kind of leaving bacteria behind from a previous mission and then discovering it in the next mission. I think that answers your question, Ronan. Um, thank you for your question. Um, Another one just coming now from Kaylin Grafton, I hope I've said that right, is are there any UK capabilities or companies that may enable Mars exploration? And do you think that the UK government are interested in space exploration and see it as a strategic objective? Massively. Uh, the Rosalind Franklin uh, rover is principally being designed and developed by Airbus um, out of Stevenage. Uh, Beagle obviously proved that there was the appetite there in the past. I mean, the UK Space Agency have a really strong mandate now for developing UK launch capability. This is one of the things that we're you know, looking at the Harwell campus where, you know, we've got an office, my company's got an office up there. Um, you know, there's numerous companies vying for launch capability out of Scotland. You've got Spaceport Cornwall and Virgin Orbital uh, based out of uh, UK. So they're kind of, they're not just looking at the scientific instrumentation, but the British are amazing at this. Um, you only have to look at the James Webb Space Telescope, one of its principal instruments. MIRI um, instrument is, you know, UK designed out of uh, Edinburgh, the uh, ATC, I believe, up in Edinburgh. Um, we've got a long history of fantastic instrumentation that have been, it's been all over the solar system. You only have to look at companies like CISIS, for example. A lot of the software that was developed for Rosetta, Mars Express, etc., has come out of CISIS, who are based out of Chippenham. Uh, quite near where I live. Um, so there is a huge interest in the UK being a big part of this. And I mean, it's one of the things, you know, we've obviously undergone Brexit in the in the not too distant uh, past. And there was a lot of concern and, you know, discussion about the impact. And it has had a massive impact on science. Don't get me wrong. Um, you know, the Galileo program, there's been a whole tranche of different things that it has impacted on. But I think the European Space Agency being you know, Brexit agnostic and independent, I think there's still this huge involvement from the UK in terms of scientific delivery. I think what's happening now with COVID may put a lot of that on hold, unfortunately, because the economy is going to be in free fall. There's going to be an awful lot of funding, which is going to be required for medical research and to kind of get the economy going again. So the doubtless be an impact but i think hopefully from a space science 
perspective uh we just need to keep going forward it's one of those things that we need to understand yeah yeah there's been so much expenditure and ready and the missions that are in in planning that you couldn't simply abandon them they may have to be put on hold for a little while because of the budgetary constraints but as you were saying while we're not launching rockets directly ourselves the systems and subsystems and subsystems that are all contracted out uh, there's a huge amount of involvement uh, from british science and engineering and research throughout uh, all these missions yeah, you only have to look at Harwell. There's, there's upwards of 100 companies in the space sector at Harwell, uh, ranging from tiny little SMEs, like two, three-person operations, up to really big global players that have got offices there. And I think the UK's, as Terry was saying at the beginning, it's a really interesting and exciting time to be involved mm -hmm. in space science. It's like I've never seen you know, in years. Uh, it's it's almost like we're on the cusp of the Mercury, Gemini, Apollo era again, where there's a real space race happening, but it's more the commercial entities that are driving it rather than yeah. the government. Yeah. Awesome. I think uh, you mentioned Apollo there, um, and we we're kind of uh, going towards the kind of manned missions towards the end of the talk, uh, but there's a really good question coming from Athaday Kyoko. I hope I've said that right. Um, and he says previously, so Apollo and Gemini and Mercury missions, um, basically most of the astronauts in the past have kind of been a military test pilot with an engineering degree. That's kind of been the role model for an astronaut. Um, but going forward, I know you say 10, 15 years for um, any kind of Mars mission, um, manned or unmanned anyway, uh, but what kind of mix do you anticipate um, for the first manned, manned Mars mission for the astronaut? I, I would hope, I mean, NASA have got a real stated goal to police a woman on the surface of the moon in the Artemis missions. Um, yeah, the old days of the test pilot mentality and mindset, it was important in, you know, in those days, you were looking at extremely complex systems, uh, very dangerous. I, mean, I, I know and knew a lot of the Apollo astronauts and you talked to Gene Cernan uh, before he passed away and he said that the most complex thing he ever did was landing on an aircraft carrier, it wasn't landing Apollo 17 on the lunar surface. Um, but they had to have that kind of do or die test pilot mindset. I think now with a Mars mission, hopefully a six-person mission, a good mix of male and female, a good mix of different nationalities, nations, hopefully everyone who's contributed to, to the Mars exploration program will be involved. Um, that's what we need. We need, again, going back to the Martian, there was so much right about what Andy Weir did. And, you know, he was very clever in getting peer review from various people at JPL and NASA and saying, well, is this right? Is this right? The whole mix of what he had there, where he had botanists and he had geologists and he had, you know, different scientists with different disciplines is what we're going to need. Um, and you only have to look at the ISS, you know, not everybody on there is a test pilot, not everyone on there, you know, they can all fly planes, they can all, you know, they've all passed the NASA qualification standards, but there's a whole range of people. And with the growth now of space tourism kind of looming large, Virgin Galactic, and again, going back to Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin, I think that era of it being a very niche thing for a very select group of people hopefully is in the past and we can move forward from that. So, Terry, any thoughts? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm finding it quite hard to hear Lax. I'll have to get headphones for the next time, but I didn't quite hear the question. But yeah, um, I think it's very good to have the involvement of the private sector as well. 
you can sort of complain about the billions that these very rich people like Bezos and Musk have, but they are doing it, some, uh, spending at least some of it on uh, things that's very worthwhile. Uh, they're probably doing it for commercial reasons, but there is a spin-off available. Uh, I'm just wondering, will they, the first uh, of um, Elon Musk's crew be known as the new gen generation of musketeers? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Good shot, Terry. I think, uh, Lex, if you can speak up a wee bit, sorry, I can't, I can hardly hear your question. I said that's a great shout, and we'll, we'll, right. definitely, we'll definitely tag Elon Musk after we post this uh, talk out on YouTube uh, and Twitter afterwards. Yeah. Any other Ooh, questions? Uh, I mean, really great questions. So thank uh, you for everyone yeah. who's listening. I'm, I'm really, really sorry to everyone who I, I will not be able to answer. I think we have a time to squeeze in a couple more. Um, and Aditya Venugopal asks, um, I think this might be a question for a botanist, but he says, can we get a rover to plant a plant on Mars with the current technology? Yes, um, they, they can dig. They've been able to dig since Viking. So if you were to take, but this is again, goes back to planetary protection. If you're going to start digging on Mars and putting fertilizer and organics on there, you're effectively messing with the ecosystem. So unless you get it right, and if you've got a lander going down with a ton of soil or manure or whatever you're going to plant your plants in, then you're going to have to be really careful that you don't, it doesn't go awry and you start spreading that all over the, all over the planetary surface. Um, yeah, it can be done. Um, the potato thing was a really neat idea. You, you only have to see it, what happened when the hub broke and, you know, it kind of froze over really quickly and, and died really quickly. Um, it could be done if you had the correct shielding, if you had, you know, there's, there's a talk about, you know, going into the caves on Mars and using those for some form of radiation shielding. You're going to need some form of solar energy. Um, potentially or, or hydroponic uh, growth system. I don't know. It's it's doable. As Terry said, if, if there's a problem, it's usually an engineering solution. Well, one problem that I have at the moment in my own garden is an even bigger problem on Mars, not enough water. So you do need something to make your own water on Mars and that you need it for drinking as well. And as you uh, know, if you follow the, uh, the film or the book, The Martian, you can recycle an awful lot of it but you do need to have the water in the first place. And if you're going to grow crops on a scale where you're going to be you know, feeding the people that are there, it's going to be a major operation. So you need the energy, you need the technology and so on to be able to do that. It's just not a matter of turning on a tap like we do here. Yeah, the water recycling is, is a great quote of yesterday's coffee is tomorrow's coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, time for one final one, and it's ending on a bit of a sci-fi note. Um, I don't see this happening within the next 15, 20 years either, but um, there's a question it asks, can we send humanoid robots to Mars instead of rovers and then control them on Earth by humans using exoskeletons? I think that's a great idea. It's, it's a really, I mean... I'll, I'll kind of start on this one and then I'll, I'll hand over to Terry. My company do a lot of work in this area with uh, VR and what's called predictive digital twinning and digital twinning systems, where we're looking at putting people into areas where they're not. Uh, and one of the things we've been looking at is uh, lunar surface operations. So being able to put somebody in a room, say, the size of a basketball court, 
uh, with a VR headset on, but they're effectively, as far as they're concerned, they're on the surface of the moon. And there's all sorts of fantastic gadgets you can strap to people to give them that kind of weightless feeling. And I just think it'd be really an interesting way to do things. With Mars, you've got the round trip light time, which is a big problem. So if you were a geologist, nominally in a VR world, walking on the surface of Mars, and you had multi-spectral head-up displays, kind of like the Google Glass on steroids, where you could look at a rock and say, right, well, that rock's interesting. The hyperspectral image coming back from that is showing me that it's, it's you know, potentially a really you know, fascinating rock. I should walk over to that one, and I should pick it up, and I should try and examine it using my extended VR presence. You only have to look at some of the robots that they've put on the ISS and the kind of humanoid nature. It's doable. The issue you've got is, as I said, the round trip time, the mechanics of it, if you've got a moving joint robot on one of the harshest environments you can imagine with very delicate electronics, um, you've got dust storms potentially whipping up, getting into all the joints. You know, going back to Apollo, those spacesuits were not eaten alive, but they were caked in dust and you couldn't get it off. The astronauts were saying it was weeks before they could get it out of their fingertips and fingernails. And you go onto the surface of Mars, you're going to have the same kind of problems. So it's going to have to be really robust. And yes, you could do it. But the, the question I always ask when people say about robots, I always say, well, most people over the age of 55 know exactly what they were doing in July 1969 when Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon. And most people, you know, that is the pivotal and the most technically advanced thing that humanity's ever done. It's the greatest technical achievement in human history. But we also bought into it because it was humans. There were human beings involved. Apollo 13, there were human beings involved. And yes, you can get some emotional attachment with robots and rovers, and it would be cheaper. There's all sorts of reasons. But it's innate in the human spirit and the human psyche to explore. If we didn't have Columbus and Vasco da Gama and all the other explorers in history, we wouldn't be where we are now. And that could be a good thing, could be a bad thing, who knows? But we need to explore. It's it's not up to, robots are great. And, you know, at, the, at this time, we can only go so far with human beings. Potentially Mars is as far as we'll get for the next maybe 100, 200 years. We may not be able to get to Europa or, you know, Titan or any of the, the distant worlds. But I think we really yeah. need to put humans there. So, yes, it again, going back to Terry, of course it can be done, but do we want to? Yeah, the, the thing is that when you're out on the surface of Mars, you're going to need almost exactly the same life support system as the Apollo astronauts had on the moon. You need protection from heat, from cold, from solar radiation, from micrometeorites, uh, and particularly from the lack of atmosphere. On the moon, the gravity is only one sixth of that of the Earth. So you could go around relatively easily wearing a very, very heavy spacesuit and backpack life support system. On Mars, the gravity is uh, four tenths, 40% of what it is on Earth. So that backpack on Mars is going to be an awful lot heavier. And uh, you have to then allow for things like sweating and so on when you're moving around. There's all sorts of things that uh, are going to be just that uh, considerable di bit different on Mars. But you will need exactly the same amount of protection when you're on the surface of Mars as they needed on the moon. And uh, I don't know if you ever tried on a full Apollo uh, space yeah. backpack, but it is one heck of a weight back here on Earth. And it would be almost uh, almost just half as heavy on Mars as opposed to one sixth of the weight that it was on the moon. It's not going to be that easy. 
Yeah, so the John Young jumping salute is not going to be happening, let's put it that way, unless they get suits like yeah. the Martian. So they the, were, the exoskeleton, mm. yes, to go back to the original point, yeah, that sort of thing is going to be useful. Uh, there's just a quick question coming from our YouTube live feed from Liam Tracy. Um, and the question is, how long is a day on Mars? Just in case people don't know. Go on, Terry. You, you how long is a before. day? Yeah. It's 24 hours and 37 minutes, which is, again, one of the things that sort of made Mars so interesting. It was just over half the size of the Earth, but in many ways it had similarities. It had the polar caps and it had a day that was quite similar to, to Earth. So it's not quite an Earth twin, but it was similar enough to be very, very interesting. Thank you for listening to the Space Store podcast. You can tune in live to our Space Talks and be part of the Q&A every Thursday at 7pm on youtube.com forward slash Space Store Live. Whilst you're there, catch up with season 1, 2 and 3 of the Space Talk and lots more. Like what you heard today? Why not support us by visiting our website, spacetour.co and check out how we are bringing space to everyone, everywhere, every day.